This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. When uh, Councilor Whitehead appeared on this program uh, just a couple of days ago, an insinuation that uh, the decision-making, a lot of it in the city, is being done by a small group, a vocal group of elitists. I'm paraphrasing, but that's pretty much, uh, I think, the thrust that uh, Councilor Whitehead was, was attempting to make with that. Uh, one of, of course, he includes me of being one of them as well. Uh, you know, God help me for having an opinion on something. Sorry, Councilor. Uh, and a couple of other folks that uh, have been on the program before, Graham uh, Crawford, of course, and uh, Ryan McGreal, who's the editor of Raise the Hammer, who we love to have on the program because he, he writes stuff on Raise the Hammer that uh, provokes discussion and conversation and debate, which is uh, kind of the democratic way of doing things. So I wanted to bring Ryan on to talk about that. And uh, Ryan, I want you to defend yourself for the things you've been doing in this community. Go ahead. Good morning. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm being facetious, of course. Sure. You, I, 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 I saw your piece today, by the way, that uh, that's why I wanted you to bring you on. Angry, well, I guess it was actually yesterday, uh, right-wing populism, whitehead uh, smear movement for a more inclusive city. Let, let's talk a little bit about your reaction to what was written by Councillor Whitehead in the op-ed piece and, and what you wrote in response. Yeah, I mean, I almost don't know where to start with this piece. You know, Hamilton's vision... You get that a lot, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's layers upon layers upon layers that you have to, you have to kind of dig into. Uh, I mean, Hamilton... Uh, Part of Hamilton's vision is to be the best place in Canada to engage citizens. And so you have citizens who take time out of their busy day to get engaged, to learn about the facts, to become organized in their communities, and to participate. And, uh, and the thanks for that is they get denigrated and attacked by a sitting member of council. This is, this is appalling behavior on the face of it. Um, it's also, I, you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning this was an attack on LRT, but I, I want to go... Uh, I mean, he, he, his piece actually doesn't just attack LRT specifically. He attacks the entire movement for a safer, more inclusive streets, for better transit, for turning surface parking lots into buildings that provide homes and jobs and create uh, more tax revenue for the city, something that council should be paying a lot of attention to right now. Uh, you know, streets that have a lower risk of, of getting into a collision that causes serious injury. I don't think there's anybody anywhere in the city who doesn't want to live and work on a safer street, including the people that, that Councillor Whitehead uh, claims to be representing. You know, I, I think the people, you know, the good people of Ward 8, they want safe streets, they want safe, healthy, inclusive communities as much as anybody else. You know, don't tell me that somebody who's living from paycheck to paycheck in Ward 8 wouldn't benefit from transit that was actually good enough to allow them to get where they need to go. So this this idea that there's this kind of us and them mentality, it's it's a narrative. It's a propaganda narrative that this councillor is fomenting in order to, to play political games. And and frankly, it's it's an insult to the people of his own ward. It's an insult to Hamiltonians who take the time to become engaged in local politics and God knows we need more people to do that. Uh, and ultimately it's a, it's an insult to his own office. You know, he is supposed to be uh, a democratic representative and that means engaging with people with a variety of views on a variety of issues and he has basically argued that people who believe that you know our streets should be more safe more inclusive you know should allow for for more choices of walking and taking transit that you know that there's something bad about that and that there you know this kind of cabal that has cast a spell over council it's, it's outrageous but here's the, here's the, the the thing that I'm concerned about and I've talked about this on the show numerous times you've written about this too this is part of a greater malaise, and it's not just here in Hamilton, but it's it's we're at that point now politically, I guess, and and from a societal standpoint, where if somebody expresses a, 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 
point of view that you find to be uh, unfavorable if for some reason or another, you have to denigrate the individual too. You can't just argue and debate the idea. You've got to not just say, first of all, I think you're wrong and I think you're an idiot for thinking that way. And I'm, I, that, that may sound a little blunt, but I mean, that seems to be the attitude that so many people in public life are taking these days. And, and this, by the way, predates Donald Trump. I mean, obviously he's the king of the hill when it comes to doing this sort of thing now, but, but it's, I've seen it happen on council for years. I've seen it happen in federal and provincial politics as well. And, and frankly, after a while, it gets a little tiresome. Sure. Well, if you can't attack an argument directly, uh, you know, the, your next step is to attack the people making the argument. And I think that's what you're seeing happen here. You know, in that op-ed, uh, Councillor White had actually said that he supports complete streets and that he supports improved transit and he supports all these things. Uh, and in fact, if you look at his voting record since he was a councillor in 2003, he has consistently, reliably voted in favor of the very things that he's attacking and denigrating now. now. I'm flattered that he thinks that, you know, a few latte-sipping urbanists have some kind of power over council, but the fact is council voted for these things because they're the right things to do. They're supported by the evidence, they're supported by expert testimony, and, and overwhelmingly they're supported by Hamiltonians. You know, I mean, p- people in Hamilton you know, can, we can debate about the best way to achieve this or that goal, but overwhelmingly, we all value safety. We all value inclusiveness. We all value having real choices in how to get around and how to organize our day. There's something uh, uh, that you touched on in the piece, and, and there have been a couple of, uh, I know, responses in, in Raise the Hammer about this too, Ryan, uh, that I'm not so sure a lot of people in council want to acknowledge, but I, I see it happening. I mean, I've lived here most of my adult life, except for one year when I lived in Toronto. But So this, this is, you know, this is in my blood. There's a changing attitude in this city, and and I'm, that may be uncomfortable for some people. But you know, I, I, we're not looking in the rearview mirror anymore, uh, and we're looking at making this a better city. And, and as you talked about, whether it's safe streets, whether it's public transit, or whatever the case might be, there's a different attitude. And frankly, I think there's a different attitude by a lot of the councilors too. I mean, ten, fifteen years ago, city council would never have made transit a, a, a priority. It just didn't happen. Uh, it just wasn't on their radar. Yeah, yeah, we need buses, yeah, but there's other things we want to do first. I, I think there is a changing focus in, around here, and that may make some people feel uncomfortable. I think so, yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, you make an excellent point, Bill. Uh, you know, we can de- design and plan our city for 25 years ago, or we can plan and design it for 25 years from now. You know, what is going to have a bigger payoff in the long term? You know, a, a study recently found that in Hamilton right now, the single biggest demographic group is millennials. There are more millennials than baby boomers in Hamilton now. So are we going to design a city for what people needed 25 years ago, or are we going to design it for what they're going to need in the next 25 years? And by the way, if you are uh, getting older, and you know, one of the issues that people experience is that mobility starts to become a challenge. It becomes harder to be able to drive. It becomes harder to be able to, you know, to do various things. This is where improved transit actually allows people to maintain a quality of life. You know, to stay in their community, you might downsize or you might bring in, you know, turn your, your house into an apartment. There's various different things you can do. But if you can remain in your community and remain connected to your network of friends, uh, that social connection has been proven to be a lifesaver. You know, isolation and loneliness is as deadly as as a, a regular pack-a-day smoking habit. And so what, what these kinds of things do, complete streets, better transit, they allow older people to age in place, to age successfully, to use uh, the excellent term that, uh, that Councillor Jackson came up with fairly recently. And, uh, and it also allows young people to have choices about how they want to live. Young people don't particularly want to drive, not the way we did. I mean, I'm old enough 
that when I turned 16, you know, I was camped out in front of the, uh, <laughs> you know, the Ontario office yep. waiting to be old enough to get my 365. Young people now, they don't see driving as freedom the way we did. It's a different culture. It's a different mindset. You know, they want to be able to get around, and they don't particularly want to have to own a car to do it. So it brings us back to, are we planning for the future, or are we hanging on to the past? A past that no longer works even now, and is increasingly not going to work as we move forward. Well, and I think this is what you've tried to do. I certainly do this on the program here on CHML. I mean, I'll bring contrary opinions in here. I mean, you know, I support the the idea of LRT. I think it's something the city is going to have to do at some point. Uh, and, and why not now when the billion dollars is on the table for us? I mean, this only makes sense. But I've had people that are opposed to this. Carol Lasich and, and others have been in the studio here. Roger Sturman's written about this extensively. I, I think their voices need to be heard, and I've given them a platform to do that here. Don't always agree with what they say, but I think they have that right to do that. And this is what this is all about. And, but but they do this in a, in a manner that's, it's it's these are their positions on this thing. They don't attack the other side. I mean, this is, it's, it's contradictory to do this, and it's not city building when you do this. It's not community building. It's destructive, and it's, it's drawing divisions between people, and that's not the way we should grow. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. Uh, former Toronto Mayor David Crombie, who, uh, as you know, is a, a longtime member of the Conservative Party, um, you know, so this is not a left-right kind of issue. Uh, the way he described the election of um, uh, Rob Ford in Toronto was he drove a wedge into the city and he grabbed the biggest piece. You know, and that's that politics of division, that politics of uh, basically stoking resentment and anger and cynicism and, oh, government can't ever do anything right, therefore let's just burn it all down, that is an ugly and ultimately self-destructive politics. And it's the politics that Councillor Whitehead and other councillors who do this, they're playing with fire when they, when they stoke that. You know, when, you're, when your engagement is to try and convince people that they should be angry and they should be suspicious and they should not see those people as being part of the same community, that's an ultimately destructive politics, and it's an ultimately destructive way of breaking apart a community. God knows in Hamilton, it has been a long, hard road since amalgamation to try and get these six independent, um, uh, you know, uh, separate communities to try and think of ourselves as one community. Amalgamation was forced on Hamilton. Nobody wanted it at the time, but it's here now. It's not going away. We have to learn how to listen to each other and how to respect each other and how to find common ground on these issues. And, you know, kind of turning everything into an us versus them debate, it doesn't help with that. Well, and we've got to be careful in what we're debating and in the manner in which we do it, too. I mean, there is no one thing that we've done here as a city, Ryan, or that we're even proposing to do here that's a magic bullet that's going to take away all the ills. I mean, LRT is not perfect. It's better than what we're going to get. Uh, but it has its shortfalls. Uh, the parking on, on Charlton and, and Herkimer, it's not perfect. I get that. Some people are upset about this. And and some of their points are legitimate. I mean, look, at two or three weeks ago, I got stuck behind a garbage truck there. And you know what? It, it held me up for all of 30 seconds. I got over it. And I realized, okay, this is the only day this week this guy collects garbage. I just happen to be here. Big deal. But for some people, that's a deal breaker. And we, we've got to get over that attitude. Well, and sure. And one of the problems is when you when you stoke fear and anger and resentment, it naturally makes people more polarized, right? When you're when you're able to to stop and listen carefully and re- recognize the dignity and the humanity of the person on the other side of a debate, it allows you to understand where they're coming from and what their needs are, and recognize that if everyone is going to end up happy, you have to come up with some kind of a compromise. You have to find. Uh, a balance, something that's inclusive, something that gives something to everybody but doesn't give everything to one group. And unfortunately, in Hamilton in the past, 
we've had a system that has been extremely disproportionately lopsided in how it has, has kind of apportioned uh, public rights of way and public resources. We're in the process of trying to rebalance that now. And so people who've kind of had a privilege for a very long time feel threatened by that. You know, and, and, uh, and when councillors exploit that and ramp up the anger and ramp up the look at what they're taking away from you, it makes it very difficult to see the dignity of somebody else. You know, one of the points I made was we all want safe streets for ourselves, but it seems like there are certain people who would like safe streets for themselves, but not for other people if it means it takes them 30 seconds longer to get where they're going. That's obviously a non-starter if we're going to build an inclusive community. Well, there's a, the other element to this, too, is when you look around you, we, I mean, we can talk about the Hamilton community, but, but let, let's expand our horizons for just a couple of seconds here. When you look at what other cities around the world are doing, too, they're incorporating some of these things. And that, that doesn't mean that you have to shoehorn every other idea into Hamilton and say, here, they're doing that over there. We should do this here. Uh, but we need to talk about it. We need to see if it's going to work here and if it's going to make this a better community. Uh, you know, I think of that old line, uh, the classic line from uh, from Bobby Kennedy. It said, everybody, everybody wants improvement, but improvement means change, and people don't like change. Well, we, you know, we're going to have to come to grips with that. You're absolutely right. Nobody likes change. You know, we're all afraid of change, and rightly so. You know, we want to protect what we have, even when what we have isn't working that well, because, you know, we may end up with something even worse. And so, you know, again, to be an effective counselor, to be a true community leader, you have to, you have to help people through that fear, you know, to, to recognize, you know what, we actually have good evidence from other cities and good evidence from right here in Hamilton that doing this kind of thing in this way works really well, that you're going to end up actually with a better situation than you have now. One of the, the, the thing, most interesting things for me about Complete Streets is that a Complete Streets redesign makes that street safer for every single road user. It doesn't just make it safer for people who are walking and riding bikes. It also makes it safer for people who are driving. If you're driving on that street, you're less likely to get into a collision and get injured. That seems like an important thing to me, but it's not something that gets that gets talked about a lot when people are saying, oh, well, this is going to mean that's going to take me an extra 30 seconds to get where I'm going. There's more to it than that. How do we how do we incorporate that? Do you see there's a change at all where, where we... And, and I'm not suggesting people acquiesce and simply say, okay, I don't want to get into an argument, so let's just drop the whole thing. I mean, we have to have these discussions. We have to have these debates. But, but how do we bring some sense of civility and fairness back into the discussion? Well, one thing I think we do need to do, and I will give, I'll give Councillor Whitehead credit for this, is you know, he said that people need to, to speak up, people need to be heard. And I absolutely agree with that. One of the problems in, uh, in Ward 8 particularly is that there's not very much uh, community neighborhood infrastructure. You know, one of the things, sort of the historical uh, differences between the lower city and some other parts of the city is that there are um, established neighborhood associations and community councils that go back decades that were established during a time when there was a lot of struggle and a lot of turmoil and a lot of change. And these organizations have actually created um, a kind of civic infrastructure that people are able to tap into and learn from each other and listen to each other and, and develop kind of a more rounded, um, more inclusive idea of what citizenship means. You know, in some ways, that infrastructure is missing in some other parts of the city, and I would love to see a real concerted push. Uh, you know, and it, in some ways, it might have to start with councillors to have real independent neighbourhood associations. So when Councillor Whitehead says, I'm speaking my, for my constituents, he's not talking about a silent majority and projecting whatever he wants onto that. He's actually hearing from people. And if he says something that doesn't represent what they think, they're going to speak up and be heard. You know, there's a reason why Councillor Farr, you know, or Councillor um, 
uh, Aidan Johnson, you know, tends to take certain positions, and it's because if they don't, they're going to hear about it, and they're going to hear about it from organized citizens who are hearing each other, and that that kind of community conversation is necessary. Well, and it goes on, and maybe that's something that uh, the, the old city could learn from uh, from some of the outlying areas. Uh, that that have become part of that amalgamated city of Hamilton right now. I mean, you, you referenced Wards 1 and 2, and of course, they've had vibrant neighborhood associations for quite some time. But that's one of the things that I was impressed with, because uh, I was on that council during amalgamation, that first term. Uh, and when you started talking to people like uh, Murray Ferguson in Ancaster at the time, and Russ Powers in Dundas, and, and Dave Mitchell out in, in Glanbrook, and, and, and the, of course the counselors from Stony Creek, and you started to hear about the input that they were getting from those community groups. That, but they, that's an offshoot of the fact that those were communities unto themselves, and they had a, a vested interest in how those communities were developed. And those, those communities are still there. It's, it's not a bad idea to get that kind of feedback. And it's not just community councils. You know, one of the interesting things that I, that I uh, took away from this ongoing debate about whether council should ask Metrolinx to look at a Bay Street LRC station is that both the Flamborough, uh, the Flamborough Chamber of Commerce and the Stony Creek Chamber of Commerce have both come out and said, look, if we're going to do LRT, then we need to do it right. And we should be making the best decisions that are going to ensure its maximum success. Uh, these these business associations and the councillors in both of those wards claim to be pro-business are saying we should be asking Metrolinx to look into doing this. And yet, you, and yet their own councillors are being ambivalent and they're sort of playing political games about it. I think we, you know, wherever there is there's organized community um, capacity and community resources, we need to be listening to those people because these are people who are invested in their communities. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Conservative uh, leadership uh, race is continuing, of course. It's not till the end of May, toward the end of May, that they're actually going to decide who the leader of the uh, federal Conservative Party is going to be. And there's still, I think, about 150 people in the race at this stage. But uh, leadership candidate Kevin O'Leary has now alleged that there is widespread voter rigging that's going on in that leadership race. Where have we heard that accusation before? Oh, yeah, I remember. Uh, he accuses backroom organizers of using prepaid cards to sign up fake members. Joining us to talk about the race... And uh, the implications of these accusations is Christo Avelis, Queen's University labor and political history professor here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Christo, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Uh, thanks for having me. This is uh, kind of happening under the radar. I mean, there's an NDP leadership race sort of going on right now. Uh, but I don't know that there's a whole lot of people uh, paying attention to the conservative race, uh, even though it's been going on for quite some time. Unless Kevin O'Leary speaks, that seems to be grabbing headlines, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, yeah, the NDP race, is, uh, it started, you know, the first debate was kind of a, a quiet affair, so I don't think the news is there yet. And I think you're right in saying that, you know, O'Leary's name recognition is just head and shoulders above everyone in the race. I mean, the big conservatives, um, you know, from the last parliament didn't choose to run. You know, Peter McKay, John Baird, Jason Kenney, you know, these big names, they're not running for the leadership. So, you know, and of course, Stephen Harper is he retired. So, you know, O'Leary's the only, the only superstar. So whenever he does something, positive or negative, it, it gets news, you know. And I think in that sense, when he says things like this or when he, you know, misses a debate, that's the story from the conservative leadership race. The, the way in which they're selecting a leader, let's talk about that for a couple of minutes, because this is, this is bizarre. I mean, for those of the, I, I love politics, and I love following politics, and it, the traditional way was, of course, the, you would elect delegates, they'd go to a convention someplace, they'd vote for somebody, whoever gets the majority thing, they, and they, that would be the leader, and that, and that was it. But this is, this is all different now, isn't it? 
Well, yeah. So the traditional way is that, you know, ridings based on the proportion of members would, say, get X amount of seats to the convention. And in a sense, you might have, say, 500 people, you know, vote for the entirety of the party to select um, the new leader of a party. In some cases, that person would instantly become prime minister, uh, like Pierre Trudeau did in 1968 and, and, you know, John Turner briefly in 84, for instance. Um, And most parties have moved to a one-member, one-vote system, where everyone who's a member of the party gets a vote. They usually do some mix of mailing or online voting. But the conservatives have a one-member, one-vote system, but they balance the value of the ridings. So whether your riding has 5,000 party members or 100 party members, those ridings are worth the same amount in the calculation. So the, the intent, I think, is to ensure you have a candidate that appeals on a national basis, but it could lead to some wonky results because, you know, if there's 50 members in a downtown Montreal riding, then, you know, um, someone like Bernier could win that riding very easily with just a couple dozen votes, whereas, you know, winning, um, you know, a large percentage of a vote in downtown Calgary, where there are probably a lot of members, um, is another proposition entirely. It just, it seems odd, which is maybe why there is some legitimacy. I know the Conservative Party is investigating uh, O'Leary's uh, claims here about uh, voter rigging, as uh, he phrased it. But uh, the, the way that they've set this up here, it does matter how many people actually sign up because they all got to vote, right? Well, yeah, I think, again, I mean, I, and I don't know the, 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 the seriousness of the allegations. I don't know. There's no evidence directly provided yet. But in a general sense, in a one-member, one-vote system, you know, a few people signed up fraudulently, you know, it's still a serious issue. We should, we, should, we should be concerned, but it might not make a difference. But in this current system, hypothetically, you know, if you go to a riding, again, in rural Quebec or, or you know, in a, a very liberal or NDP part of Quebec, and sign up just a couple dozen people, you can swing that entire riding. And again, it's not one member, one vote in the counting. It's riding balance. So, you know, signing up a couple fraudulent members in Alberta, not going to be a big deal. Signing, up the, signing them up in a very liberal or NDP part of Nova Scotia or southern Ontario could be, you know, a, a massive swing. And I think that's the concern. Yeah, and, and again, we're not suggesting that we're putting any validity no. behind O'Leary's uh, accusations no. here. We're just saying the way this system is set up, uh, if what happened actually did happen, if what O'Leary is, is accusing uh, other candidates, especially uh, Bernier, uh, that he seems to be focusing on here, uh, that they're selling fake memberships. In other words, by you by using prepaid credit cards. So, so in other words, you can't identify who the members actually are. They're, they're really false memberships, but they are. They could potentially, under this system, swing the way those ridings are going to be voting in, in the upcoming leadership itself. And and so that is a, quite a serious accusation, obviously. Yeah, you know, and I think I think you know that's why the party's looking into it. I think. You know, it's, it could also be politics. I think one of the factors I think that's giving Bernier a chance in this race, one, he, he speaks to a, a well-defined kind of social, liberal, fiscal conservative in the party, but I think he also, you know, um, will be very popular in Quebec. You know, he's a Quebec conservative, and the reality is, is there's not a lot of party members in Quebec, but there's a lot of ridings in Quebec. You know, it's a, a riding-rich area of the country, and he can get a lot of votes there. And if, you know, to put him over the top, you know, he was to, to do any kind of thing like this, that could be seen as um, a tactic. You know, now, of course, again, these allegations are, uh, at this stage, you know, not, not proven at all. But I think this kind of system they have um, incentivizes this kind of 
or could incentivize, you know, any fi- kind of way to find these small advantages. Again, whereas in a one-member, one-vote system, where you say you have 100,000 party members, then frankly, uh, you know, a, a couple dozen people here or there probably won't matter, you know? Does this system help or hurt in the selection process like this, Christo? I mean, and again, as a comparator, to go back to the way it used to be, there would be a convention and these delegates would be there. And as you say, probably only four or 500 of them as opposed to everybody in the country that identified themselves as a member of that party. Uh, so they'd elect delegates and they'd go to this thing. But there would be speeches made. Uh, there would be horse trading going on. You know, I'm, I'm dropping out and I'll throw my support behind you. We saw that happen uh, when Joe Clark got elected years ago for the Conservatives, when Stefan Dion got elected in Montreal uh, as the Liberal leader. Uh, we saw this sort of thing going on. It doesn't look to me as if there's much opportunity for any of that stuff to go on, on under this process anyway. Well, you know, I, I think that's, that's, that's one of the challenges. Again, the, 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 the benefits of the old system, and again, this is all perspective, sure. is that the people in the room were the party activists. You know, sometimes they were the big wigs, you know, like the, the, the you know, or the boys in short pants, you know, but, but sometimes they were just, you know, the, the, the local person who works really hard to sign up members and go door to door in, you know, rural, you know, New Brunswick, you know what I mean? And they want to be there to pick the next leader. And you still got a diversity of perspectives, but, you know, the worry was from some cases that one, it didn't seem very democratic. And I think we take a lot of cues from our American neighbors, and then they have quite a, a, a more open primary process, so maybe there's a, a, a clamor for that. And there's also a feeling that you could get more representation by getting a wider vote. Now, the conservatives in turn have said, well, part of the problem with one member, one vote, is that we might not have a lot of members in Quebec, but we do want to win votes there. So one thing we can do is we can balance out the riding proportions to ensure that, you know, at least hypothetically, a successful candidate is going to have to be popular even in parts of the country where the party isn't necessarily um, active. Um, the challenge with this, again, is that it could, in the close elections, distort results where maybe the intent was served, but, you know, a person could win the nomination with, you know, actually far less votes than another person because of this balance. Whereas, you know, in the NDP, for instance, they have a one-member, one-vote system, and that might lead to distortions where certain parts of the countries have more members, but at the end of the day, the winner will have the most votes. You know, and that's, you know, whether it's first, first or second or third choice votes combined, they'll have the most votes. So I think that's the, the rationale for this system. I think it could cause issues, um, you know, if uh, we see that on ballots. And, yeah, you're right that the online system um, makes it harder to do a lot of this uh, vote trading at the convention. Uh, it makes dropping out less incentivized, too, I believe, because, you know, there's no, if there's no real need to kind of leverage your last bit of power to maybe make a key political ally, then you maybe don't have to do it. This could be one of the reasons why we still have 14 people or so in this race when, when really only about maybe four or five have any chance of winning. And, and there lies part of the problem, because, because there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of opportunity for the people in that second echelon, I guess, uh, in the race, so, you know, the bottom seven, I guess, uh, Christo, uh, to move up, because <laughs> there's, there's really no chance. You, you, the, the, you just have to keep selling memberships and hope that there's going to be a proportional representation there. But if you're ninth right now, you're probably going to stay ninth, maybe get up to eighth, and by the time the, uh, the, the, the thing comes to its culmination, of course, uh, for the convention, but not much chance of, of doing much more than that. It kind of looks like the big three right now are the big three, and it's going to stay that way. Yeah, I mean, it's looking, you know, you have, 
And, you know, one thing you could see is you might have that fourth or fifth person be, you know, somebody do quite well. Someone like an Andrew Shear, who isn't getting a super amount of attention, but is, you know, respected by kind of most of the party wings, was the Speaker of the House in the, in the Harper, uh, the last Harper government. You know, someone like him might be able to kind of go through where, you let's say that Bernier voters uh, don't like O'Leary voters, or O'Leary voters don't like Bernier voters, or Leach voters don't like either of them, or what have you, this is on the second or third ballot, can still matter. It can still matter. And, you know, you could still see, you know, um, you know, people, you know, through their networks and whatnot, still try to make a pitch out to people to say, you know, uh, you know, I'm dropping out. I encourage you to support this person. But, you know, the optics of the old convention where you'd see the person, you know, cross the floor, like physically, like they cross the floor and they go to their rival and say, I am bringing my supporters, should they choose to come, to you. And that was powerful, and I don't know if we'll quite have that, that image now, you know, with it much larger. And the effect on the people in the room, while massive, I mean, a lot of, even at the last NDP convention, um, we had the convention-style politics, but at the end of the day, most of the people voting um, had already voted on their subsequent ballots via online, and most of the voters weren't in that room. Exactly. And and the other end of that was, of course, how Kathleen Wynne became the the premier here in Ontario. It uh, was, uh, where I guess, when Charles Souza literally walked across the floor at Maple Leaf Gardens there and, and, and gave his support. And uh, and I think it was Eric Hoskins was the other one that did that at time, because Sandra Pupatello seemed to be the front runner, and they supported Kathleen Wynne. So you can have huge swings like that. I, I got the feeling when they finally go to the convention, this is going to be a long, long process. Yeah, I... It could be quite tough. I mean, one of the things is that, you know, the NDP convention in 2013 or 2012, sorry, was, you know, there was, I believe, eight people on the ballot, and it took a few ballots to get it done. If there's 14 people on the ballot here, you know, it really could be the case that we're in for, you know, they'll have to do a five or six, you know, vote count swing because, you know, I think at the convention after the first ballot, some people will drop out, you know, because they've raised their profile. They've gotten, you know, the modicums of media attention. Even though O'Leary's getting, you know, maybe more of the, like, most of the pie, some of the, the also-rans are getting more attention than they normally get. But you're right, I think it could be complicated. It could be long. And, again, the, the, the current system, and, again, this is totally aside from O'Leary's allegations, could lead to some very interesting results. And, and that could, you know, um, create controversy. Um, and, you know, if, if the next election goes great for them, it'll be... It'll be one thing, but if it goes poorly, then they'll say, like, how representative of a leader did we get? Part of the problem, I guess, there, you know, when you talk about somebody that says, okay, I, I've, I've made my, my statement, I've made my point, I, I want to throw my support someplace else. Uh, the, the, the people on front right now don't have a whole lot to offer. I mean, they're not in government. They're not going to be in government for at least a couple of years, if, and, and that maybe even not even then, which is maybe why some of the big names you talked about at the beginning of the conversation didn't run in the first place. But it's not as if they can say, yeah, I'll make you finance minister, or no, you can be international trade minister or something like that. There's, there's really not a whole lot of wild cards to play here, are there? That's a great point. You know, I think in a sense you're right in saying that, you know, there's only so much you can give right now. But, you know, you could say, and I think this is a fair point, you know, people are saying, you know, Trudeau's a lock for 2019, but, you know, Pierre Trudeau in 1968 won a very big majority and almost lost his government in 72. So, you know, I wouldn't count out winning yet, you know, and 2019 is not that far away. You know, we're only a couple of years away now. Mm-hmm. And and I think one of the things is, you know, being official opposition is that, 
you can give out official critic roles, and those are still pretty high profile. Gives you a lot of opportunity, you know, to get you know get camera space in the, in in in, in uh, House of Commons. Gets you on the news. Um, you know, you get to go toe to toe with a cabinet minister. And I think in that sense, there's a lot of power to be offered there. You know, I, I think that's very important. And of course, you know, some of these people, they are running for those positions. So, you know, uh, they're not necessarily running to be leader. They're running to demonstrate the value to, to the next leader, the value to the party members. Or for some of the people who are maybe a bit younger, they might not even be running for this time, but for the next time. Maybe some people are, are saying, you know, 2019, we're going to lose. I'm running now to get my name out there. And then, you know, in 2021, if the next leader uh, goes, then I can run again. You know, people are playing the long game in this sometimes. Fascinating to watch the, uh, the, the dynamic that's going on in place here. Christo, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. That's a Professor Christo Avalos, of course, Queen's University Labor and Political History Professor. We're back after the break. The Bill Kelly Show continues here on 900 CHML. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The lawyer for Karim Baratov, for the Ancaster man arrested in that massive uh, hack of Yahoo emails, says the charges against him may be politically motivated by the United States of America. Hmm. Uh, what are the next steps? We know he had a court appearance earlier this week. He's supposed to appear in court later today, we're told, here in Hamilton. Joining us to talk about the next steps and uh, the process that's involved here, Ari Goldkind, a Toronto defense lawyer, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Ari, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Great to be on with you again, Bill. Good morning. I'm looking for a lot of clarity, and I think a lot of folks are too. I mean, you know, now that the shock is starting to wear off, we're starting to say, well, what's going on here? Sure. Uh, and, and about who was involved in this. Now, he was arrested in Ancaster, of course, about three blocks from where I live, and so my neighbors are still talking about this. Uh, but it was it was actually this was motivated by U.S. authorities, correct? Yes, and uh, we can get into we can make this a very simple story. I can sure. explain this to listeners. It's not really that complicated. And back to what his lawyer said this morning. Given the amount of funds that his lawyer has hopefully got from his client, he would say something outlandish like that. There's not much that can be said here. This is a very very clear indictment that you know people can tie this into the Trump. 24-7 news cycle about Russia, but you can rest assured that these charges would have been laid if uh, Hillary Clinton was still the president. Uh, the indictment is very, very simple. Leave the president out of it for a minute. If you're one of the 500 million people, and I'm not exaggerating this, one of the 500 million people who still use Yahoo, you had your account hacked. Now, why does that matter? Because when you sign up for an account, Yahoo, Google, Hotmail, whatever your preferred provider is, you give personal information, your birth date, oftentimes your address, oftentimes other information that can be used to find you across other sites you use on the Internet. And for anybody reading between my lines, lots of people use lots of sites on the Internet that they may not want publicized by their loved ones. The point of this is, is that the U.S. government, contrary to what most of us think, that if you're hiding off somewhere, you have a server on a deserted island in the South Pacific, you're going to get away with this. He, right now, is one of four people implicated in not getting away with it. The indictment is really that simple, that he hacked accounts, used your information, sold that information, profited by having that Aston Martin and all those cars zooming up and down his Ancaster street, 
as you said, and now we can discuss the next steps, which are, again, not all that complicated. That's an interesting point, and I think very cogent to to the discussion here, too, Ari. Uh, This is not done in an arbitrary fashion, and from my understanding, I had a couple of offline discussions with some law enforcement people uh, over the last 24 hours or so, and they say, look, it, it takes a long time to put a case like this together before they start laying charges. So you, to your point about this has not a whole lot to do with probably nothing at all to do with Trump's presidency or anything else, or Russian hacking. This has to do with what this individual and his, his other partners did. And that's right. And let me make this point very quickly before we get into what's coming for this young man. You've got to remember, most U.S. attorneys in the States are very, very oftentimes left-leaning they would be much more likely to vote for a Clinton, given the current political climate where you're sort of a pariah if you support Trump. This is something in the works likely for over a year, a year and a half. And any listener who wants to can just Google and read this indictment of this young man from Ancaster, and you will see this was not something that you flipped open your MacBook or PC last night, drafted up and said, oh, I'm just going to charge somebody. So what happens now? He's had one appearance in court already, and we're told that I, I think it's, it's actually a video appearance uh, later on this afternoon, and then once again in a Hamilton courtroom. What's what's being discussed? What are they doing there? Sure. So do you want me to just explain the next steps? That would be great. Yeah. Okay. So very easily, because you don't need to be a lawyer or in law school to get this, here's what happens. He's on video today just to confirm that he's hired a lawyer. Now, his lawyer is the luckiest man in the GTA, Hamilton, Ontario region today because we know this young man has deep pockets, and that's a legal fee you're going to be very happy to collect. That's all today's appearance is. Do I have a lawyer? What day would I like to schedule my extradition hearing? From there, you go to the Superior Court at the Sapinka Building. He's going to have what's called an extradition hearing. The judge of the Superior Court will have a copy of the indictment. All an indictment is is it lays out over about 40 pages what the U.S. said you did and why and what the crime is. I've read it. It's clear as day. It's actually very interesting, like an episode of Homeland or one of your favorite Netflix shows. It's that interesting. It's not boring or dry. Next, the judge looks at any other information the Americans have provided to the Canadian government He has clearly been found by a judge to have enough grounds to issue a warrant for his arrest. This young man's in jail. His next steps are very simple. Apply for bail, which he may not likely get given everything we've talked about already. Number two, he can consent to being extradited to go to San Francisco, where these charges come out of, to face the charges. San Francisco, because as your listeners know, that's the mecca of the tech world and Mm -hmm. Yahoo and all those places. Or three, he can contest the extradition and say there aren't grounds to send him there. I think he's going to have a very difficult time there, because I'll give listeners, for example, if he was going to face the death penalty, the death penalty in Canada is illegal. So we don't extradite people who might face the death penalty. Because this is the U.S., such a close ally, a system of law that is respected, he is going to likely be extradited by a superior court judge. He can then appeal that decision if he doesn't like it, and he's got the legal (laughs) fees to do it, which he clearly does. Or he can write to the Minister of Justice and say on other grounds, compassionate grounds, other things his legal team may come up with, that the minister should decline under Section 44, not to bore people, but under 44, to not send them to the states. Long story short, Bill, he's going. But can his lawyers uh, rag the puck legally here, Ari, and just hold this up for a a period of time? I I, I wouldn't even know for what reason, but, I mean, it's within their right to do so. Uh, is Is it a strategy they may employ here? 
Absolutely. Now, we know, and I'm not going to get into a political discussion because we don't have the time here about how many people are observant that it's very hard to be booted out of Canada, or you can really gum up the legal system, as you've mentioned. But here, this young man seems to be some a, a person with, on the one hand, a lot of sense and smarts in terms of what he's doing and how he's lived his life, and on the other hand, a lot of foolishness because his social media accounts, which is an interesting part of the story, his own big mouth has helped... I think, essentially seal his fate because all of his social media bragging and pictures and, you know, Instagram nonsense will be used against him in a court out in the state. So while he can hold it up and, you know, give his lawyers hundreds of thousands of dollars, he should realize, and if his legal team is giving him honest advice, if he was my client, I would certainly say, you know what, you're going to have a tough time convincing the Minister of Justice here or a superior court judge that if you're hacking 500 million people's accounts, and the whole idea of the Internet now is that people get away with God knows what because they're hard to find or hard to catch or they're on an island in the South Pacific, this is a case where he is going to have to go face the music and explain his role in all of this and uh, have his proverbial bill day in court. Yeah, that's one of the uh, the great mysteries as far as we're concerned. I mean, clearly this guy Ari is a, is a tech genius to uh, have have done what people are accusing him of doing here. But at the same, one of my coworkers yesterday, when the story broke, just accessed his Facebook page and a number of other things on social media and, and very easily. To figure this is a guy who's perpetrating or alleged to have perpetrated all these crimes, but he didn't cover his own back door. And that's the funny part about it, Bill, because there's a really interesting part to that story, which is. He not only was showing his lavish lifestyle in some gross Kardashian-like way, he also made a sort of a trail back to the fact that he is a hacker. He does run denial-of-service attacks, that he is an online guy. And the reason why it's so strange to me is because people think this is so hard to do. But the big scandal that takes up far too much time on my CNN, which used to have interesting stories about crime and weather, is when the hacking of the Democrats and the election and all that, that was simply somebody sending an email to John Podesta, who runs the Democratic Committee. It looked like a real email. He clicked an attachment, put in his password, and the whole thing was hacked. That doesn't sound all that extremely weird or difficult to me, so people shouldn't think this is something so massively hard to do. We just tend to trust our computers, our phones a little bit too much, and they can be taken advantage of. The problem with him is, you know, when you sort of brag about your own crimes, it's very tough for you to march into a courtroom, even with the best of lawyers, and say, well, you should kind of ignore my big mouth. What those social media posts do and all the things that people can find is it shows his state of mind and judges and juries, Bill, tend to find what you're talking about in your own statement of mind, in your own words, very, very persuasive if you go to a trial and say, don't convict me. That's that's one of the other things that's uh, somewhat uh, bizarre here, too, is, uh, I mean, go back to the days of organized crime. Well, it's still out there, but I mean, you know, the, the mafia and, and, you know, John Gotti and people like that. You know, one of the, the codes, of course, of the mafia was do not be ostentatious when you have lots of money, because that draws attention to you. And clearly, he didn't seem to get that message. That's right, Bill, and if you think of our favorite movies, because you just mentioned one, and there's Goodfellas and The Godfather. Oh, yeah, you ever yeah. see them? you ever see them on their own phone? Oh, they had a pay phone, the guy was on the phone, then he'd walk over to the bar and whisper in his ear. Mr. Da- this young man probably should have watched a little bit of Turner Classic movies and learned not 
to do the very things he has done. Question uh, from one of our listeners as you and I are having this conversation, Ari. Uh, you, obviously, there was a warrant issued, as you said, in San Francisco for this uh, this uh, gentleman, this Mr. Baratov. Uh, when that is presented to Canadian law enforcement officials, are they bound to do this, or is that a courtesy, or do the, do the U.S. officials have to show cause to why they want this guy arrested? Yes, yeah, so your listener asked a great question. Let me back up a step and explain how it works. The U.S. sends their material and their request for extradition to the Canadian government, to the Attorney General. The Attorney General can't then just go arrest him. It's not the way it works, and this is good news for listeners who think that we should be our own sovereign country. The record of the case, which is the legal sort of uh, jargon for it, but really the indictment would go to a judge at a courthouse where the, the attorney general slash police would have to show the grounds to have him arrested. So that passes a judicial test first in Canada, likely in Hamilton, even out of Ottawa, but more, more likely Hamilton or Toronto, that a judge signs off and says we have reasonable grounds to arrest him based on the U.S. complaint. And the whole rationale for that bill, and to your listeners, very good question, is we're not slaves to the U.S. or any other country. But if you're getting a request for extradition from a country that has the rule of law, that has judges and juries and all of the procedural safeguards we tend to think we have in Canada, you still have to go to a judge here and say there's something rational, reasonable, likely probable to be arrested for, and then as soon as they get that warrant, as you know, Bill, and your listeners know, the Toronto Police Fugitive Squad, and obviously the Hamilton Police Force got involved, went to his house and arrested him without incident. So there is that judicial check here. We don't just do what the U.S. says because they say jump and we say how high. Ari, you read the uh, the, the files on this, uh, the same ones that the judge and, and obviously the, the, the police had with this as well. Uh, this, is, this is not going to end with just a fine and a slap on the wrist if this man is convicted, is it? No, it's not. And the other thing, it's funny because I was making a comment about Homeland or your favorite Netflix yeah. show. A lot of the news, and you know, I think it's quite something that they're going out to his driveway and peeking in his garage at his beautiful Aston Martins and other things. The U.S. government has not only said he did these things, but they're linking the paper trail, the money trail, follow the money from these Russian intelligence officers, paying him to do these things on the computer and saying that's where all of those gains come from. So not only is he looking at significant, significant jail time, all of these lavish, lavish Kardashian-like things he has, quote, earned, unquote, depending on your view of earning an income mm -hmm. and earning a living in an honest way, the government has in their indictment on a very interesting one or two pages of that indictment, they're coming after the whole kitten caboodle. So all of those assets that your neighbor... Uh, lives near, or all the people on his street were complaining. He goes up and down the street with his no muffler, ridiculous car driving people crazy. That's all going bye bye too. And and of course, this is going to be held when the trial finally does occur. This is going to be in a California courtroom, uh, and that of course is the land of, of consecutive, not concurrent sentences. Uh, that uh, would imagine that that's going to add up when the sentencing, if in fact there's a conviction, the sentencing is going to be rather significant. Uh, are there a chance of more charges as well? I know that one of the other individuals that was arrested, we're told, is already in jail over in in, in Russia these days, and he's charged with espionage. Is that a possibility here too? Well, I'm not so sure that the espionage charge will flow as something new, but the, the, the two parts to that question are, it's good, in my view, this is just my personal opinion, that if you're doing these kinds of things from anywhere in the world, that the arm of the law now can sort of find you. It's the same thing with tax cheats. I never understand why, given you know all the needs of Canadians going to the hospital, roads, 
medical things. We let people who cheat taxes fly off to these other jurisdictions and nobody does anything. Now we're starting to do something. So that's a very, very important part of this case that you can't outrun it. But in terms of the sentencing in the States, which we all think about from our favorite show where somebody gets 600 years in jail for six murders, like 100 years per jail, one of the very subtextual parts of that, the the quiet things that happen, is that forces people to make deals. Because you don't want to die in jail. He's 22 years old, right? Mm -hmm. So if he knows, Bill, that he's facing 50, 60, 70 years if he's convicted, and, you know, I I don't think they brought this prosecution willy-nilly. These are the kinds of sentences that are very different in Canada that this is either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on where you stand or sit, that will likely, once he gets U.S. attorneys, many to most cases there do not go to trial because there is a huge incentive, often far more than in Canada, to make a deal so that you can see some form of daylight before you die of a very old man in jail. And I would not be surprised if that ends up happening here, because he's probably not the big fish, for lack of a better term, that the government is really interested in. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.